Welcome to the Prosperity Podcast. This is episode 2, recorded on the 6th of July 2021. So yeah, welcome. Let me just check that the audio is good. Hopefully mine is okay. I'm looking at the audio waveform. It seems to be okay. Let's check how John's is doing. John, hello. How hey, are you how's today? it going? Oh, I'm hey, doing great. Just beautiful, good beautiful weather here. Hot, but lovely. Oh, come on. The weather here is lousy. In the You have to do this, don't you? <laughs> if there's good weather for you and there's bad weather for me, you have to sound so happy. Oh, uh, well, you let me make it worse for you. So I'm sitting in the office downstairs and it's all windows, this big bank of windows on the side and my favorite tree in the yard, we have this big oak tree and it's got like these vines growing up and it's postcard perfect right now. So there you go. I, so I you hate can feel you. even worse about your terrible weather. I it's hate just, you. It's but... <laughs> We're going to talk about hating you again later, but yes, I hate you right now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we got sound. That's good. So episode two, uh, we've already reached episode two, which has come around so quick. We're going to talk today a little bit about some of the things we touched on in the previous episode. There's the imposter syndrome, ideas, serendipity, seeing and observing, going with the flow, all kinds of things. But it will follow on naturally, I think, from what we talked about before. Now, we can't give away the idea, but actually in doing the episode last week, we came up with an idea for a new product, didn't we? And we don't want to give it away because it's commercially valuable, but it was a new, a totally new idea for a new product. So here's a question for you, for those thinking, oh, yeah, okay, well, obviously we researched this and so on. What did we do? Did we sit down? Did we think hard to come up with the idea? Did it just come to us? Did it fall out of the skies? Why did it come to us? What sort of things went on? All we did was we were talking about the podcast and you had this idea, well, hey, wouldn't it be great if we did this thing that would help other people with their podcast? And it just that was it. It came right out of that. There was, it was maybe two, three minute conversation. Now, this is that lovely term that we get serendipitous, which uh, it's a fancy term for saying that something seems to happen uh, almost organically, automatically, and it's beneficial, but you don't really know where it comes from. And we were talking about this in episode one. You remember we were talking about those two movies? Yep. So they came about in a similar way, didn't they, where people had been exposed to an event which was the uh, comet collision on Jupiter. And it sort of planted a seed in the creative minds of the movie industry. And, okay, sometimes it takes a, a while for seeds to, uh, to grow and, and, you know, mature. But sometimes it's very quick, and it was very quick with our idea for this new product. In fact, funnily enough, uh, we're talking about seeds that grow. When you plant something and there's harvest, it can be six months later, nine months later, a year later. In some cases, with certain plants, it can take a couple of years before you get any fruit. I read something today about certain uh, types of bamboo and the speed they can grow at, and I had to calculate it because they put it at 0.00003 kilometers an hour, um, which is, I had to work it out, and I think it's 10 centimeters an hour. Wow. Two and a half inches an hour. No, no, not that's more, isn't it? Um, it would be four, about four, is that? Yeah, four inches an hour. So in some cases, that seed can grow really fast. You know, there's um, speed sometimes that occurs. So in thinking about that idea that came to us, is it a finished idea? Is it 
you know, is there going to be work to do on it? In other words, everybody's capable of having an idea, but what happens next? What, 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 what will we do next? What's the plan for us? What are we going to do? Well, yeah, the next step is to get it into action, pitch the idea to a coder, see what it's going to take, you know, basically do a plausibility analysis. You know, is it, is it going to work? Does it make sense to do it? So there's a little bit of work, even after you have a brilliant idea, and I'm saying it's a brilliant idea, probably just a basic idea, but uh, it will certainly help people. But there's always another step. So the step between the creation of a, an idea or the receiving an, of an idea, if you want to put it that way, and the end result, there's a bit in the middle, isn't there? And we'll talk about uh, that a little bit more later. But it's it's something that happens to everybody. And I'm willing to bet, and you probably agree with me, I think, but if not, let me know. I bet most people have had some idea in their life and maybe a year later or 10 years later, they've seen that idea taken up by somebody else. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's no question that that happens. That's happened to me. And just looking back, thinking back over all of our product line, pretty much every product we've ever created came out of something like this idea came out of just we were talking about something we had seen or read something we had just done something else that was related and after a chat and bouncing a few ideas back and forth we had the product idea and so we sat down you know laid it out did the diagrams made it work and then we had a product so i know that happens to me all the time wouldn't it be great if one two three but then i don't do anything about it Right. Yes. If it's yeah. outside of our market, I never do anything about it, but it is a great idea. So I'm sure, I'm sure that happens to everyone who's listening that they have ideas that they think would be great for a product, but maybe they don't know what to do after that to actually make the product or they don't think they're capable, which gets us back to what we were talking about last time and the imposter syndrome and all that. Well, we're going to talk more about imposter syndrome in a moment or two. But what would you say to people? And by the way, what I'm about to say to you, we get this feedback all the time. So what would you say to people who uh, tell you or tell me? Yeah, but I'm just not creative that way. Oh, I would tell them that everyone is creative. If you have an idea, I mean, that that's a creative process. And I know like me personally, I'm not artistically creative and yet I've been able to learn how to accomplish things artistically, which we'll get into that a little later too. So just because you think you're not creative doesn't mean you can't learn the process. Yes. Some people are naturally more creative. Some people are naturally more inclined to art or music or whatever, and that doesn't mean you can't learn to play the piano. It just means that it's going to take a little bit more work for you. So I don't think anyone should say they're not creative. I think they should say they haven't learned how to focus their creativity yet because everybody's got that capacity. That's a great quote. And actually kind of feeds back into the quote we had from Henry Ford last, last time, which is whether you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right. So if you tell yourself you're not creative, you're putting up a mental block. If you tell yourself you're creative and then look for those ways to be creative, 
at least you're going to be priming your brain to do that. And we talked about that in the last episode. So anybody who hasn't listened to that, we'd certainly recommend you go check out episode one. As an example for you, uh, I do a lot of street photography because I happen to love that. And in London, which is my favorite place to visit, it's a great place for doing that. And the number of potential images for that kind of photography, whether you like it or not, doesn't matter, by the way, but for that kind of photography, the potential is massive. But most people they don't really see that potential because they're not looking and they're not primed to look. And actually when I've, um, you know, spent some time with people, various other photographers, I might point out some of the potential to people. And the interesting thing is they, they turn and say, I didn't see that when to me, what they really meant was I didn't look for that. And there's a difference, isn't there between seeing and looking? Oh, definitely. Yeah. You know, I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan. He yeah. talks about that too. Well, that, that that's a lovely quote. Uh, and in fact, what, what is the quote? Do you remember what the quote is? I don't remember it word for word. I'm sure you've written it down. So. <laughs> ah, no, well, I haven't written it down, but he, he talks about the difference between seeing and observing. He's talking to Dr. Watson, his uh, companion, his, his helper. And he illustrates the difference between seeing something and observing it. So, and this is an interesting exercise for everybody to do at home. Those of you who live in a two-story or more building where you have some steps to go upstairs, you will see those at least a few times a day, probably for most people, uh, at least a couple of times a day, go up and downstairs, come down for breakfast, what have you. But do you observe them? Because if I were to ask you how many steps are there from top to bottom or bottom to top, the average person would say, I don't know. So you can see something every day without observing it. If you observe it, you will know that there are whatever, 12, 20, 15, whatever the number may be. By the way, talking of film references, I don't know if you've ever seen a film called Without a Clue with Michael Caine. And, oh, and I was I was thinking of that, that as you were talking about it, when he yeah. asked Lestrade how many windows are outside the front of the building. Yes, yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> Uh, and Michael Caine, who plays a pretend Sherlock Holmes, gets the answer wrong. And Dr. Watson, who's the real brains in this comedy, uh, corrects him quietly, which is, um, you know, fantastic. But there's also a scene in that film which shows the, I would say, it actually shows the average public's perception of creativity. And let me explain that. And you'll remember it as soon as I tell you, John. Do you remember the scene where Ben Kingley's Watson is trying to uh, impress the Prime Minister to use him to deal with a particular national emergency because uh, Michael Caine as, as Sherlock has, uh, well, he, effectively he's been fired and he's gone off uh, and he's drinking in a bar. And the Prime Minister isn't impressed with Dr. Watson's deductions. Do you remember that scene? Right, yeah. Right? Now, because the Prime Minister doesn't want to uh, employ Dr. Watson, he's not impressed with it. He thinks, no, I want the real Sherlock, please. Dr. Watson, the character, goes and finds Michael Caine in the bar, drags him back to Baker Street, uh, sobers him up in a particularly funny moment, and then Sherlock walks out, greets the Prime Minister, and tells him exactly the same thing as Dr. Watson had said. Do you remember what the Prime Minister's reaction was? I don't. It's altered. been a long time since okay. I've seen the movie. Okay. I watched too many films, as you can tell. Well, he, he looks at him and he beams at him and says, amazing, Holmes. He's so impressed with what Holmes did because there's a persona about Sherlock Holmes that made the information valuable. 
the reason I mentioned this is if a friend tells you that you can make money online by doing a particular thing, you may not appreciate what he's telling you as much as if somebody else that you do appreciate tells you the same thing. And in the same way as we talked about street photography last, uh, last episode, where there are people who are making a lot of money teaching um, you know, visitors to various cities how to do this, as a, a tour guide almost, the people who attend those workshops would not pay attention to somebody offering that information for free without any kind of, uh, shall we say, reputation. So you can get this information going past you all the time. You're seeing it, but you're not observing it. You're not questioning, is that information good? Will it work? Is there any uh, failing in the information? So we're surrounded by information all the time, and we see it all the time, but we don't necessarily observe it. And I think we see that with the kind of audience we have where they will see information and sometimes they simply will not act on it because uh, they don't ascribe sufficient importance to it because the source that it came from isn't on their list of people they're fans of. Yeah, it's called the appeal to authority logical fallacy. Yes. People think that just because something comes from someone who's well known, that it's more likely to be true. And there's yeah. no reason for that to be true. It's it's an irrational emotional response. But that's that's us. That's humans. That's how we think, unfortunately. You know, so you gotta learn to live with that. Yeah, it is. It's very true. We're, we're all relatively similar under the skin and the way we behave. And that means that it's possible to predict, I think. So we were talking about imposter syndrome in the previous episode. I thought we might uh, continue that a little bit. And we've had a look at some references on this, haven't we? There's one I found, uh, which I thought was quite interesting on verywellmind.com. Uh, and, and they kind of give a definition of imposter syndrome which is it's an internal experience of believing that you are not as competent as others perceive you to be. But I think it's more important, really, to consider it as a belief that you're not as competent as you believe yourself to be, as you perceive yourself to be. And that also includes uh, whether you deserve success. And there is a, a fear of success in some people. So it's got links to perfectionism. So people want things to be perfect, which is unrealistic. Do you suffer from that or have you managed to, over the years, have you managed to overcome it? Yeah, I don't now, at least not in the market that we're in because, you know, we've been doing this for so long and I've been writing software for decades and decades and decades. So although, you know, I have enough humility to know that I don't know all the answers and to know when I need to go and look things up or double check things or run things by you or whatever, I don't fear that I can't do it anymore because we've had so many successes and we've learned from the uh, things that were not successful. So I never go into any project worried that it's not going to work. Okay. I've got um, a question for you that relates to who wants to be a millionaire. Uh, you don't have to answer the question if you don't want to, because it's a very direct question. And you know, I love to throw you these curveballs. <laughs> Yes, you so, do. <laughs> here, it, here, here it goes. So when you start creating something, do you or are you willing to release it when it is not perfect? Oh, you have to. You have to. I learned that early on as a software developer that you will never, ever, ever get everything right the first time. It doesn't matter how much time you spend on it. It doesn't matter how 
carefully, you re-examine it over and over again until it's out there in the wild with thousands or hundreds of thousands or whatever, countless other people looking at it and using it in a way you wouldn't, you're just not going to be able to spot the problems. And those people will always report the problems. They'll report the bugs through the help desk, sometimes through the software itself. It reports back to us. And then we can go in and fix the problem. If you try to make anything perfect, you would never get it out the gate. It would never happen. I like to say that perfection is the enemy of success because when you try to make things perfect, you're never happy enough. You never let it go. And here's another thing. When I used to work corporate, what we would do is we would get all these requirements from uh, whatever department or company we were creating software for. They would give us all the requirements and we would go and create this tool, the software, the addition based on their requirements. But inevitably, when we gave it back to them, they would find things wrong. That, <laughs> yes. But it's done exactly the way they said it should be done, but they're not happy with it. So if you spent all your time trying to make everything just so, we would go so over budget, it would be ridiculous. So we would just push it back to them like bare bones and see what they say. And then if it did actually need these other little nitpicky things they talked about, then we would go in and do some of those. But you would never do everything that they said they would like to do right out of the gate because most of the stuff on the list would either not be used at all or wouldn't actually be what they needed. So, yeah, you, you absolutely do not try to make something perfect before you push it out. Nobody does that, at least not in the world of IT and software. Well, let me give you a couple of quotes about that, because one is from uh, Microsoft, and uh, this is probably 20 years ago that this quote was released. Shipping is a feature too. In other words, you can't use something until it's been shipped out to you, you know, delivered. Uh, these days, it's all download, of course. But, you know, something perfect that isn't around for the next five years is of no use to me today. Something that's 80% as good as it could be today is going to give me 80% of the benefit rather than zero. So that was the Microsoft quote. But the other one, which I think is quite interesting based on what you've just said, came from Steve Jobs. So you said uh, you would create what was in the specs and people didn't really know what they wanted. One of the quotes, I think, from Steve Jobs was something along the lines of, people don't know what they need until we give it to them which I thought was a, a great quote. I mean, he kind of meant that we would create new marketplaces and new product experiences and, and product types. But he was right. Nobody knew that they needed a smartphone which had music, camera, GPS, and so on until he delivered that. And then from there, it became incrementally better. I don't know if you ever had the first iPhone. It didn't I, do much. I didn't have the first iPhone. I had the very early touchscreen like ipod but yes. i never did own the phone but it, if you compare it to the modern ones it didn't do much so they're now on level uh well iteration 12 and the difference between the early ones and you know you can build on what you release in other words and yep. you were saying that's what you were saying so when you release this into the wild you get tremendous feedback and this is why it's a bit like who wants to be a millionaire. I think in the US, it's probably the same as here. You know, they have the three lifelines. There's phone a friend, 50-50, and ask the audience. 
I have never seen the show. I know that oh, puts you? me in very rare company, <laughs> but I, I have never actually watched the show. Well, when, when they get stuck on a question that they don't know the answer to, one of the options to get help is to ask the audience. And in most cases, the wisdom of crowds is significantly better than the wisdom of an individual. So what you'll tend to find is, of four possible answers, if you ask a crowd of a, a few hundred people, you're going to get the correct answer, will get about 70 or 80% of the votes, which is a pretty strong indication that's the right answer. The feedback from a crowd is so good that the people who don't know anything are drowned out. They, the, their noise, as it were, dissipates. Uh, the people who have particular views that are wrong are drowned out. And the, the average view, if you like, um, is what most people would want. And it tends to be the correct one. So if you've got this released as a product to a 1,000 people and 900 of them say, actually, what I need is a clear button that says, click here to do X, then that's what you need. If three people tell you that what it really needs is a multifaceted approach to running on several different computers at the same time, no, it doesn't need that because 997 didn't mention it. So this uh, wisdom of crowds um, is, is something – well, you have this crowdsourcing idea, don't you, for – not just for funding, but also, also for coming up with ideas. And I think one of the big things that I would take from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire is that listening to the crowd can be extremely beneficial. It could certainly make the difference between winning the million and losing. And in your case, as you mentioned there, between finding a product that works and continues to evolve, just the same as they did with the uh, with the iPhone from version one to version 12. Our oldest, longest lasting software tool that we sell, our oldest product, uses crowdsourcing not only for the data that the software itself uses, but when I first designed it and pushed it out, that's what I did. Like I did the basic functionality and in version 1.0, pushed it out to the list and then asked people for their feedback what do you think? How could it be better? You know, where are the problems? And they gave me feedback and I pushed updates. They gave me feedback. I pushed updates, they gave me feedback. And because of doing it that way throughout the lifespan of this tool, man, when did we create that? That was, uh, it's, it's going to be 10 years. At it's got to be 10 years. Yeah. That it's been out and it's been through three complete rewrites since then. And it's still going very well. So that, kind of crowdsourcing, relying on the wisdom of crowds, on feedback from crowds, whether it's software or any other product, it's great. It really does make it better because these are the people you want to buy it or people like them if they already bought it. And so you want to know what they want. It doesn't matter what the minority want because the minority, those aren't the people who are going to make you the most money when you sell a product. You want to know what the majority are after. And so you get their feedback, you get their suggestions, you get their requirements, and you build your product based on that, not based on what just a few people want. It doesn't mean you ignore what the few want, because it might be a great idea, like Steve Jobs, you know, they don't know what they want, so we give it to them. You might get one of those ideas, but your primary focus is on what the majority of people are asking for. That's what we've always done, and it's worked out very well for us. Well, it kind of feeds back into imposter syndrome, I think, in a way, because 
we've seen that many people are afraid to say, I don't know. And they, they feel it's a failure. Whereas asking for information and feedback and, and, you know, how do we do this is what will allow you to take the next step. Even if that question is, look, I've got version one or version 0.5. What do you think would make it better? People seem to be very scared of admitting that they do not have all the answers. I don't know why. Um, well, I do know why, but because I, I feel the same myself sometimes. But the, the the questions that are unasked are the only ones that are really stupid because then you can't get an answer. If you ask a question and it's obvious to somebody else, good for them, cool for them. If it isn't obvious to you, how else are you going to get the answer? You've got to ask the question. Have you noticed that where people are just too scared to say, I'm not sure, I don't know? Oh, definitely. And all of that stems to our biology, which I like to say, and maybe this is a terrible perspective, but I like to think that people are brilliant, brilliant brains attached to pretty dumb biology, right? Pretty <laughs> dumb bodies, right? So we have this brilliant brain that's capable of trillions of transactions per second and all of these, you know, imagination and planning and building and thinking and we're capable of all of these amazing things with our brain, but it's limited by our biology. And in this particular case, we have a fear of looking, of losing status or losing face with the group. So if we think we don't know something, we're afraid to admit it because we think that makes us look lesser in the eyes of other people. And so most people won't admit when they don't know something or if they find something confusing. And uh, Americans have a terrible, we have a terrible uh, culture of not saying when we think something is wrong. Like people go to a restaurant and the server will walk by and he'll ask, is everything okay? And if your food's terrible, American culture, at least here in the South, is, oh, it's fine. You just won't come back, right? You <laughs> yeah, won't go yeah. back. It would be better for you and for the uh, establishment if you say, you know, you guys really messed up this thing. Uh, can you fix that for me and do it different next time? That way they learn from the feedback, but we don't give it because our culture is not to rock the boat. And sometimes you need to rock the boat. Sometimes you need to admit when you don't know or point out when there's a flaw because that's better for everybody. But that's a learned behavior. It doesn't come naturally because our biology doesn't want to make us look like we're standing out from the crowd in a negative way. Absolutely. I'm going to, this is an adult show. I'm going to drop some F bombs. So you talked about um, feedback, you talked about flaw. We've talked about failure. I want to talk about a fix. And here's what I'm talking about. A lot of people see feedback as evidence of failure because something went wrong. You, you know, you overcooked that steak or whatever it might be. They see flaws as failure rather than more feedback. What they should be thinking of, I think, and let me know if you agree, is that feedback and flaws are things that you can fix to get to the next level. And I remember learning this a long time ago. In fact, a, a boss I had when I worked in a law firm, um, not long after leaving school, he said to me something about not knowing because uh, he didn't know everything about every single law. Nobody does. But for the ones that uh, came up where he didn't know it, his attitude was, 
I don't know the answer to that yet, but I'm going to find out. And as a result of not knowing the answer, I will then become better educated, more knowledgeable, and more capable. So finding something that you don't know, if you use it the right way, allows you to grow as a person in knowledge and all this kind of stuff. And I think, you know, if we look at failure, sometimes it's, it's a false failure. Feedback about something is not a failure point, but a lot of people seem to treat it as if it is. Uh, it, it just, I don't know, if we could treat failure as an imposter. In fact, there's a wonderful poem by Kipling. You, you probably know if, uh, if, you, if you can treat um, success and failure as the imposters they are. That's a paraphrase. And it's a great point that, you know, they they come in disguises. They really do. And so many people will take feedback as evidence of failure when it isn't. It's potential for improvement and getting things right. Yeah, I agree. To me, I just, and I said in the first episode, I don't like the word failure. I don't believe in the concept of failure, I feel like when something doesn't work the way you thought it would, it teaches you something. And the more that happens, the larger body of knowledge you have that eventually leads to you accomplishing what you're after. I used the example of Edison and the 1000 light bulbs. It took him a thousand yes. tries to get to the, the one that actually worked, the filament in the light bulb that actually worked. And that's how, how it is. Like you just have to keep learning until you have a big enough knowledge base to accomplish what it is you're trying to achieve. If you viewed every time it didn't work as a quote failure, you would get disheartened before you ever achieve the goal. But if you just see it, well, that didn't work. Let's try this one. Well, that didn't work. Let's try this one. And you keep walking towards the goal. Eventually, that body of knowledge is going to grow large enough for you to be able to get there. And I just think that's a better way to look at it. I like the uh, books and the podcasts by Steve Levitt, uh, Freakonomics. Yes. And he is a, an economist, a professor of economy, I believe, uh, economics. And he says, fail fast, fail often. And I love that phrase, fail fast, fail often. The point he's making is when you keep trying things, that failure in getting it done quickly, success is a numbers game. It's a numbers game. You just have to try enough things to find the thing that works. He says, so the more things you can try that don't work, the closer you're getting to the one that does. So fail fast, fail often. And I really try to use that and put that into practice in what we do so that when I'm coding, for instance, if one way of trying to make something work doesn't work, just scrap it and start over and then that doesn't work, scrap it and start over. And you get to the one that does much quicker. If you keep trying to force the one you're doing first to work, well, if I do this, maybe if I do this, maybe if I do this, the odds of that being the successful path are much smaller than just saying, nope, that's not the right way to approach it. Let's look for a different, simple approach that'll solve this problem. And I found that to be true in most things of life. If something's too complicated or difficult, it's probably not the best solution. Occam's razor, right? If yes. With all of the things being the same, the simplest solution is the best solution. 
And plus, it's a lot easier on you to implement a simple solution to help other people understand a simple solution. If a product is simple to use, that's better for sales and getting people to want to buy it. All of the all of the above. So fail fast, fail often, keep it simple, stupid, Occam's razor. There's reasons why we have all these sayings. They're true. They're true. Don't overcomplicate things and don't look at failure as a negative. In fact, don't even use the word failure at all. If it bothers you, just call it a learning experience. Which is exactly what it should be. We're going to talk about failing in a moment and, and a simple way of learning to things or teaching things. Um, but what you've just said, it's a bit like, you know, we were talking about Thomas Edison last week and his attempts to create the light bulb and the word, I forget the number, I think it was 100 or 1,000, whatever, attempts to find a material that would work and none of them worked. If you were to ask most people about Thomas Edison, they might talk about the phonograph and the light bulb. That's what he's remembered for. He's not remembered for failing 100 times. Those of us who like quotes and so on, we'll know that. And, and that's his particular quote, that he just found 99 different ways uh, of doing something different, which was an interesting way of calling the failure. Uh, but he's remembered for having invented the light bulb. And that revolutionized the world, of course. So he's remembered for that one attempt out of 100 or 1,000 or whatever it was. I can't remember the exact number. Uh, and in the same way, as you were saying, fail often, fail fast. The end bit where you hit the bullseye is what you will be remembered for. Here's another thing, um, just to kind of emphasize that point. A lot of people will have heard of J.K. Rowling, who's written the Harry Potter stuff. And she's a, I think she's a billionaire now. She made a lot of money from that. So they'll know of the success of the films. Most people will not know that she failed to have the books accepted. I think it was something like 28 times, 28 different publishers she went to before somebody was willing to take a chance. She was told that her books would be a failure over and over and over. She's remembered now for the success. I mean, you know, so worrying yeah. about failing today. Like, sorry, go on. Yeah. No, I'm just, I use her example a lot when talking to people who think that, that are dealing with rejection. I go to JK Rowling all the time. Like, you know who else was rejected over and over and over again Beatles, for an idea so. that was amazing and made her the biggest entertainment success on the planet. JK Rowling with Harry Potter. And people don't know that. I'm like, yes, she was rejected again and again and again, but mm. she never gave up and good things she didn't because not only did look at her own personal fortune because of it, it created this, amazing experience that a lot of people really, I mean, they almost just completely identify with the stories. Yes. I've talked to people who they identify with the, a certain house of the, whatever it's called. I, I'm not a big Harry Potter fan. Yeah, I like the movies, yeah. of course. Yeah. They yeah. identify with the house of the place where they learn magic, right? There's huge, huge, uh, communities built around this, none of which would have existed if she had given up. So it's brought a lot of people, a lot of pleasure. It's brought a lot of people, a lot of entertainment. It's made her very wealthy and they're just really well done. Wonderful stories that add to the culture and to the literature. So don't give up. Oh, it just, it bothers me so much when people 
accept someone else's rejection as the last word. Yeah. Well, you know, I failed, I failed, I failed. You can get a yes. Uh, come on. That's not the end of it. Keep going until you get a yes. In fact, the commission only salespeople in certain jobs have a hard time um, selling. It's got to be hard sell very often. And I came across a training uh, manual at one time, which taught them how to deal with the issue. And I think it's fairly common among salespeople anyway, so it's not nothing new. But what they taught them to seek out was the rejections, the answers, no. Would you be interested in? And the, the answer, no, is what they were seeking. And it sounds counterintuitive, but behind it was that the sooner you get all the no's that you're going to get today, the sooner you will get the yes that you will get today. You need a certain number of no's to get the yes, and the yes is going to make you some good money, right? You don't have to, uh, as the saying goes, certainly in the US, not here, because we don't uh, say it this way, but you don't get a home run every time. You don't hit it out of the park every time. You've got to strike the ball a number of times before you get the home run. You hit it out of the park. You've got to get rid of the no's to get to the yes. And if they adopt that mindset, every no, every setback, every rejection actually gives them strength and encouragement to move to the next one because they know they're getting closer to their destination. It's a bit like being on a train where every time it stops, there's a new station. And if you think about it, that way, well, this is just extending the journey. No, you're getting closer to your destination. You're getting closer to your destination. It's a reframing. In fact, we said this, didn't we, on the first episode? We said sometimes reversing the problem can be an easier way of finding a solution. And by looking for the no's, the rejections, you can discard those like Henry Ford did. Uh, sorry, not Henry Ford, uh, Thomas Edison, and move closer to the success, to the to the yes. And uh, that's what you said about the products that you've developed over the years. You know, you try them out and see what happens, see what sticks. And, and this is a, a classic case, I think, of how reframing the way you look at something can make a difference about whether you carry on. Yeah, looking at things from the opposite angle, that's used in a lot of different professions. Like in uh, stock trading, currency trading, any kind of trading that uses charts, technical analysts will flip the chart upside down rather than looking at the chart where the lowest dollar values on the bottom and the highest is on the top, they'll flip it so that the uh, lowest is on the top and the highest is on the bottom. And they do that because technical analysts look for certain patterns in the chart. And sometimes if you flip it upside down, you'll spot the pattern immediately. Whereas when you're looking at it right side up, like you get lost in the weeds, like of your emotional response to the price. Like if it's not going the way you want it to go, you might be overwhelmed with with that emotion rather than seeing the numbers and the chart, the chart structure for what it is. So they'll flip it upside down and suddenly it looks like some other chart that you're not interested in and boom, you can see the structure immediately. So looking at any problem or situation from the opposite angle that you've been looking at, it can often be very enlightening and give you a better, clearer sense of where you need to go. It's interesting that you say that, flipping that upside down, because um, 
Well, we'll talk about intelligent and creative people getting in their own way in a moment, but uh, there's a book called uh, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. I think the author's called Betty Edwards. It's been around for uh, 20 or 30 years, I think. And effectively, she's teaching people who think they can't draw how to draw. And all they have to do is what they're told. And the exercises in the book are really, really, well, not stupid because they work, but at first glance, they seem stupid. So one of the things she does is to uh, tell you to draw something upside down because it breaks the link between your brain trying to process what you're seeing, so an object that you're familiar with, and it turns it into a pattern that you were just talking about because people tend to be quite good at patterns, but we don't realize that. Um, but if it's something that's too well known, you don't notice the pattern anymore. You just see, uh, you know, what the object is. But if you flip it around, turn it upside down, you start to see the pattern. And in fact, there was a TV show in the UK. This is a long, long time ago, and it shows you how much TV I watch. It was a kid's show. You won't believe this, John. It was a kid's show. And they showed you how to, I can't believe they did this, but it was, it worked. They showed you how to forge somebody's signature on a kid's show. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. That would have been yeah. coming handy for all those excuse notes at school. I know. Well, the way they did it was they said, take the signature and turn it upside down. And it's no longer a signature. It's just random squiggles. And you copy it. You can try it yourself anyway. You copy the squiggles without worrying what it actually is meant to say. Now, I, I didn't go into a life of crime. Let me say that. But I tried it, and um, it works. And I was a kid when this first came on. And as a party trick, at new whenever I've had a new job, I've sometimes shown people. Said, "Look, let me show you how to. Uh, I'll show you how to forge your signature." And they say, "Oh, mine's impossible. Look, it's really a squiggle." So give it here. I'll show you. And then you do it, and they look at you. And this is in the days. You know, when people would sign checks and so on, it's a little bit different with modern technology. But uh, if you signed a check, you know, the signature had to match. And they'd look at the signature and you could see their faces go white, that it was so easy. And I said, I learned it on a kid's show. And by turning it upside down, what you were talking about with the analyst technical charts, it becomes a pattern. It no longer has the same meaning. And therefore, you're not overlaying your own sense of what it is. You're just looking at the pattern in front of you. And uh, one of the things that Betty Edwards teaches in her book on how to draw is to do that. Uh, there's another technical exercise to help you to draw more accurately by look away from what you're drawing. So you have the paper behind you and you're looking, say, at your left hand and you're drawing behind yourself. So you can't really see what you're doing. And it's teaching you to break the link between an object that you already know and the representation of it on paper. Because the representation on paper is just lines on the page, right? There's one other I'll mention from that book, and then we'll talk about intelligence and creativity. Uh, and she, this, is, this sounds weird, but she's been very successful in teaching people how to draw well. Tell me what you think of this. Do not draw what is there. Draw the empty spaces around what is there. That's an interesting, interesting idea. 
Huh. Yeah, it's the neg- what they call negative space. Right, right. Uh, which is kind of what you're saying about the same thing, you know, flipping the idea. So if you draw the spaces in between, say, your fingers, as an example, so there's a line that delineates the space, it's easier because that space isn't a finger. It, you, you know, the symbolic representation of a finger is fixed in our heads. But the space, well, we can just kind of trace it out almost. And then the lines around that space become the shape of the fingers. What it's doing is stopping you thinking about what does this object represent. So if we talk about uh, people trying to make a living online, they have an end goal and they think about all the steps in between, but they're sometimes too analytical. And this is where we're going to talk about intelligence and creativity. Some people are too analytical because they're thinking, you know, well, I know I've got to do that, but I'm not good at that. I can't do that. That looks difficult. They're too analytical, too intelligent, if you like, too creative almost. They get in their own way compared to somebody who's just following the steps that they're told to do. You know, if you tell somebody, just do this every day, twice a day, and they follow that instruction, they're very often more likely to have success than somebody who analyzes too deeply. You know, when you were talking about failing fast and failing frequently, if you analyze every little piece of information, you can't fail fast. You get bogged down too much. It's the, you've heard the phrase uh, paralysis, no, analysis, paralysis. There's just too much information and you, you're going to be bogged down with it. Sometimes you've just got to take a leap. So sometimes people do get in their own way and by being too analytical, they're not just following the simple steps that work. It's almost like the Betty Crocker bake at home. You know, the steps on the back, crack an egg, mix it into the packet mix, stir, <laughs> put in the oven for 10 minutes, and then what comes out is a cake. Oh, not 10 minutes, whatever. You know, you follow those steps, one, two, three, and you end up with the baked cake. It's not the finest cake you're ever going to come across in your life but it's an end result that does what it says on the packet. So the, the drawing, go ahead. <clears throat> the go ahead. drawing of the negative space thing. Yeah. I like that because it seems to me that people get nervous or concerned that they're going to do something wrong, right? They're go- they're not yeah. going to do it the right way. Like yes. if you want to draw a hand, I don't know how to draw a hand. I'm not good at this. I'm not going to be able to do this. If you say, don't draw the hand, just draw the space around the hand. Well, now they don't have to get everything right. And the removal of that stress makes the end product better because the stress is a self-sabotage. Your concern that you're not going to do it creates a self-fulfilling fulfilling prophecy that you're not going to be able to do it back to Henry Ford, whether you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. And so by finding ways to remove that stress from the process, thus the Betty Crocker one, two, three, breaking it down to the simplest of steps, it removes any anxiety that you're going to do it wrong. And so what you end up with is a much better end result than if you had done it the other way. So I like that. Any any way you can find to remove stress from your creative process will absolutely make that process go smoother. And you'll know when it's going well because you get into flow and we all know what that's like, whatever you're doing, if you're cutting the grass or building something or taking a drive or you know, making a cake, what drawing a picture, whatever you're doing, you get in this zone 
where you're not thinking about anything else. You're just completely focused on the task at hand. And when you do that, the task just seems to disappear. Like it finishes quickly and easily. And you look back and you're amazed at how well that went. Sports figures, the most famous athletes do this. They get into flow. Michael Jordan is quoted as having said that when he was playing basketball, literally nothing else was going through his mind, but what he was doing in that moment. He was completely focused on that goal, on getting to the end of the court, whatever it was he was doing in the moment. And because of that, that made him better because he got into flow. So the fail fast, fail often process, you'll know when you're, you found the right one, the right thing, because you'll get into flow and it will just feel easy and come naturally in a way that all the other ones, the quote failures, didn't. They were hard. They were stressful. They were difficult. So you can gauge whether or not what you're doing is the way you should be doing it based on whether or not it's easy for you to fall into flow while you're engaged in that particular process. That has always worked for me. That has been my yardstick. I like to say that if something's too hard, it's wrong. Now, of course, it doesn't mean it's, it might require a lot of output of energy. I don't mean hard in the terms of it being very physically taxing or mentally taxing. It might require a lot of energy, but is it complicated? Is it stressful in a negative way? If it is, that's probably not the solution that you're looking for. You just said a mouthful. Uh, and the most important point to me, actually, I agree with everything you said. But the first point you mentioned about self-sabotage, that is so true. And particularly with intelligent and creative people, they do self-sabotage. They get in their own way. And as soon as you remove that, like you've said, then they're kind of free to move on. And this whole concept of overthinking freezes people. It freezes people. And the drawing book is a great kind of illustration of that point because there are examples in it showing people before they've had the tuition and then five days later, turning out the stuff that looks like professional stuff, but they've been given a simple technique to do it. Now, there's also... Um, I think he's fairly famous around the world, actually. A guy called, he's, he's passed over now, but uh, a guy called Bob Ross, who did um, The Joy of Painting. I don't know if you've ever seen those Oh, shows. I love that guy. Yeah, his he had a wonderful personality. So calm. It, yeah. People yeah, actually absolutely. watch his old shows to yeah. help them fall asleep. Well, they're repeated in the UK. So soothing, yeah. And what he does is he shows you techniques for creating a tree on canvas that do not involve drawing a tree or painting a tree. I can't paint a tree. A long time ago, I actually did some of these paintings. I bought the gear to go with it and so on. Uh, I can't paint a tree because you think about thousands of leaves and all the intricacy of detail and so on. He didn't paint a tree. What he would do is use a particular brush, and he said, if you use this brush, and if you put it at this angle and then dab it, it's going to create the leaves for you. And it'd show you, and lo and behold, magic appeared. What he did was simplify and ignore what people had in their head. How do I paint a tree? We're not going to paint a tree or a mountain or a lake or whatever it might be. Or, you know, 
he'd talk about painting a, a, a wooden building in a farmyard or whatever it might be. No, we're not going to do that. We're just going to do a V shape here. Anybody can do V, right? We do a little V. Then we're going to do a straight line here and a straight line across. He removed the reality of the object to make it simpler. And so he got out of the way of the painting and he allowed people who followed him to do the same thing. It's, it's a case of taking away that self-sabotage. I cannot paint a tree. I still can't paint a tree, but I could use the same technique as Bob Ross did that ends up with a painting of a tree. The difference is the techniques I would use will do it for me. And if you think about the intelligence of the average person, uh, even people who think they're not intelligent, they can hold a conversation with friends. They can talk about, um, you know, knowledgeably about sports games or their favorite, whatever it might be, video games and so on. And then if you ask them to write something down, create a blog post on that topic, they'll freeze. Oh, I don't know how to write. I don't know. Well, you know how to speak. The written word is just speech on paper. So why not just speak and then write down what you've said? In fact, one of the things we teach very often is to be conversational in your content, because that's what most people want. You know, we're not discussing this like two Harvard professors here. We're just talking man to man about our own experiences. And we're talking the way we would talk to family. We're not putting in fancy terms for the sake of it. So that what you said about that self-sabotage, it's so easy to fall into that trap, but it's also remarkably easy to come out of it if you use some of the techniques we've talked about right now and that negative space thing that you liked, uh, it's kind of, as soon as you've done it, it makes sense, you know, because the shadows and the, the things around an object are what define it. If you had a white object on a, a piece of white paper, you don't see it. You need a shadow to see it. So the object becomes defined by the shadow, right? So if we take care of the shadow, we automatically take care of the object. You know, there are ways and techniques for overcoming the natural self-sabotage that most of us have. And even if you think you're an outlier and that you have more self-sabotage than anyone else, the techniques will work for you. We'll talk more about those in future episodes, of course, and we'll send you to some uh, resources where you can learn more about them. But never assume that they cannot apply to you. These techniques will work for anyone quite literally anyone. Um, an interesting final point um, to do with how the brain works is that in research, Betty Edward found that some scientists found where people had um, physical damage to the left side of the brain, which is the logical side, they became better automatically without any lessons at creative things, whether that was creating music, singing, or drawing or painting, because the effect was to dull down the left-hand side of the brain. The input from the left-hand side was lower. So the logical side of the brain wasn't taking over. And the right-hand side, the creative, the intuitive, was allowed more input into what they would do. A really weird thing to think that your own brain can um, work against you. And we do have these two hemisphere, hemispheres where each one is kind of optimized for a different type of thinking. The left-hand side is the more logical, analytical side, which most people, um, for most people, that probably tends to be the, the dominant side. And the right-hand side is more creative and intuitive. 
and seems to have uh, innate skills, including ability to to draw. By the way, one of the lessons in, and, and this is the final point on Betty Edwards in that book, one of the things she emphasizes is that she's not teaching you to draw. What she's teaching you to do is to see, or if we can remind ourselves about the Sherlock Holmes quote, she's teaching you to observe. When you observe that there is a thin line, a darker line around your finger that illustrates the shape of the finger, because it's the shadow from the lighting, you're more easily able to draw it. If you don't notice it or observe it in the first place, how can you put it down on paper? And so although it was um, a fictional thing with Sherlock Holmes, the point about seeing and observing is a really important one. And it actually comes through into real life as well, because there is a big distinction between the two. So um, early on, John, I said something about, <laughs> you were telling me about the weather. And do you remember what I said to you? I, I don't actually, other than, oh, right. Yes. You, you hate me because every time the weather's nasty there, <laughs> it's beautiful here, which we just have great weather here in North Carolina. Yeah. Now, you know, I don't mean that, of course, but I said that to you the other day, didn't I hate you about something? Oh, and yes. you took it as a compliment. Yes. It was a compliment because if you hate me for that thing, yeah, it was an amazing compliment. Uh, last episode, we were at the beach, right? So yes. I was at the beach and we went out one morning. It was too cool that morning to actually swim. So uh, Beth and I just walked on the beach. But the beach was also almost empty because we showed up at a time when most people weren't there because we don't go ever on a holiday weekend. We go right before or right after because that's when there's hardly anybody there. Most people are going to show up on the holiday. And so the beach was almost empty and I got this perfect, perfect candid picture of Beth running in the water. And it is to date my favorite picture I've ever taken in my life. And I do a lot of photography now. So that that's really saying something because I've got a lot of pictures that I really love, but this one just turned out flawless <laughs> and I yeah. was very happy about it. So I sent it to you and I'll let you tell them what you told me. Well, I looked at it and it's a fantastic photo. It's extremely artistic. And I said, great shot, John, I hate you. And he said, oh, that's a compliment. So <laughs> what did you use to take that picture? I just used my phone, phone camera. Okay. You didn't use a high-tech camera with a ton of gear? Nope. No. Nope. nope. Okay. You spend a lot of time composing it and thinking about the rule of thirds and silhouette and backlighting and exposure? Nope. I just took a few pictures while she was running in the water and that one turned out perfect. Yeah, that's why I hate you because it was absolutely, <laughs> it was a stunning photograph. And the interesting thing about this is you were, because you were walking, you were enjoying yourselves, you weren't thinking about anything else. You had nature around you. You were in the moment, you were in the zone like we were talking about. Yep. 30 minutes ago, you were in the, the zone, in, in flow. And so the composition arose naturally from that flow state. You weren't thinking about, well, if I position this just right, I'm going to get the sun in the background shining slightly above Beth's head. Uh, she's silhouetted, so it's got that sort of air of mystery and some wonderful foam as the waves hit the beach. Um, there's dynamic motion because she's moving towards me, so it's not a static image. I've got a position nicely in the frame. None of that was going on in your head. You just clicked because it looked good, right? That's it. Yeah. And it worked. Now, if you were 
a traditional photographer and you weren't in the flow, you would have fiddled about with your settings thinking, well, I need this speed to arrest the motion so that the, you know, but I want a little bit of blur on the, the foamy waves to look good. Um, I've got the silhouette here. What, what settings do I need to make sure that the sun's okay and the blue sky is looking good? You would have spent time thinking about that and missed the shot, right? Because you'd have been analyzing. You'd have been analyzing. Now, one of the things that happens in photography is that when people are in that flow state, and this happens sometimes after you've been walking around for a while or you've been taking pictures for a while, you kind of have to warm up like an athlete does. You don't think about those things anymore. You just see something ahead of you and you raise the camera and take the picture. Now, it could be done with the phone. It doesn't really matter. But there's no analysis going on on the left-hand side of the brain. There's an intuition from the right-hand side of the brain which is what this Betty Edwards was talking about with her book, there's an intuition that recognizes it. Now, if you were to look at it afterwards and analyze the shot, and, and that's what I did when I was looking at it. I wasn't part of the shot. I wasn't there. I wasn't feeling the sun on my shoulders. I wasn't hearing the sound of the waves. I was looking at why does it work? And it works because of all kinds of different things. But the analysis didn't take place when you were there. You just click the shutter button, you know, the button on the phone, and you got the shot. So, you know, overly intelligent, creative people, when they're analyzing too deep, can get in their own way. You took a shot, you were in a flow state, uh, and physical activity like that can often get you into that, and you got a really superb shot. Um, now, interestingly, by the way, you were saying that it was fairly quiet because it was after the uh, or before the holiday weekend? Yeah. Was it before or after? I can't remember. Yeah, uh, in this particular case, it was right after. Okay. Know. So you you didn't have all the crowds because they'd done their 4th of July thing. Uh, and so when you got there, it was almost empty. So this is sort of not going with the flow, isn't it, of the flow of the crowds. Uh, this is actually going contrary to the crowd. So there is a, a theory about contrarianism, isn't there? And this, as far as um, investing is concerned, you were talking about investing and analysing trends on a chart and so on uh, you've come across contrarianism i'm sure oh yeah absolutely yeah it's, yeah. it's pretty common trade investment uh strategy so essentially it's doing what other people are not doing or doing the opposite of what they're doing when people are buying um, that's a time to sell when they're selling it's a time to buy in in very simple terms yeah um, because the crowd moves as one and when they've stopped moving opportunities occur right so if you want to uh, crowdsource something, an idea and so on, that's great. But there comes a point. In fact, this is the point we made 20 minutes ago. There comes a point where they're going to be telling you things that are no longer of benefit. So if 10 people are saying, I want this new feature, but the rest of the crowd have gone silent, you don't need the new feature. How have you found that works out for you in your own sort of developmental process with coding? Yeah, it does. Uh, when things get quiet, you definitely do get, better ideas and that coupled with repetition when you you talk about looking at for instance stock charts yeah one thing because I, I know a few technical analysts and they look at charts all day long like that's their job right so all day long they're looking at charts you're looking at charts and it becomes second nature for them to spot patterns and structures 
in charts. Uh, there's a phrase for it. It's called representational similarity analysis. This is complicated. RSA. Your brain does this naturally. A very simple example is when you buy a new car, let's say you bought a blue Honda. Suddenly you will see every blue Honda on the road. Whereas before you never noticed those cars, like ever, <laughs> you never noticed. Now you yeah. see them all the time because you have one. And so it's a prominent feature in your brain. So anything that is prominent in your mind like that, you're going to naturally start picking up other related things for. And that's true whether it's stock charts or in the case of my photography, doubling back to that for just a second, my, like you said, my creative side of my brain, it kicks in naturally now. Whereas before I, I took terrible pictures, I was terrible at it. But the more I did, the more pictures I took, the more my brain started to like shift that workload over to the right side. And now I get a sense when I look at something, even if it's far away, I get a sense like that would be a great picture. And I walk over to it and I'll snap a picture and lo and behold, it often turns out very well because of RSA, your brain becomes conditioned to look for things that support that goal that you have in mind all the time. And that's why people who do technical analysis for a living are very good at it. People who don't do it for a living, but occasionally want to trade stock, it destroys their portfolio because they don't do it enough to ever get in flow. And for all the things you've already talked about to come to fruition and to get applied and for success to follow. So yeah, absolutely. In those quiet moments, when you do this all the time, it really leads to better ideas, to better success, to not always follow the crowd, but to walk your own path sometimes. The crowd can give you enormous amounts of wonderful information that you can use in that feedback loop to put into your products. But sometimes walking that path by yourself gives you that initial idea that gets it all started. And that goes back to the Steve Jobs concept that people don't know what they want until we give it to them. Yeah, and it worked out pretty well for him and Apple. And that whole concept, you're talking about noticing cars and so on. Uh, this, again, it, it relates to the question of observation. And I told you that when I do street photography, which I, I love doing that, uh, because you never know what you're going to see. When I'm walking around with other people, if I point things out to them, they didn't see them. But if I prime them in advance, you know, if I so it's a bit like saying, find every blue Honda. They will see those things because their brain is primed to look for it. If I were to say to people, as we walk around, let's look for uh, anybody who is wearing something yellow. They're going to see people wearing yellow. They will completely ignore people wearing red. In the same way as when you're looking at a blue Honda, you're not thinking about uh, a green Jag or whatever. So that, that priming of what you're doing and focusing on something goes with the flow that we were talking about, the flow state you were in on that beach. And a primed mind and a flow state can get you to a result so fast because the brain is working in sync then. You're looking for a particular thing. Um, you're in the flow state. And it takes practice. But you know what? We've all heard the phrase practice makes perfect. I just, I don't know why so many people 
think there will be exceptions to that with certain skills. If you want to be good at doing social media, you've got to practice it. If you want to be good at playing the flute, you've got to practice. If you want to be good at photography, whether with a phone or a camera, you've got to practice. Whatever you want to do and do well, you've got to practice. And we do know that many people will try something once or twice and then say it's not perfect, I'll give up. And we also know that some people, and this is that imposter syndrome again, because they want things to be perfect, if they don't believe they can be perfect on the first attempt, they won't even try. I mean, seriously, that's, you know, that is absolutely a recipe for never succeeding. Not the same as failing, but never succeeding. If you don't even try, you will never succeed. If you try and it doesn't work, and I think we said this on the first episode, didn't we? Try, try, try again. Try, try, try again is a great mantra to have, you know, but use the feedback. The feedback loop is good. If you try something and it doesn't work out, try something slightly different. Uh, and I think, was it our friend Albert Einstein who said, it's the definition of insanity to keep doing the same thing and expect different results or something wording to that effect. I can't remember the exact quote, uh, but yeah, it is. If you keep doing the same thing, you're not going to get a different result. So if you want a different result, try something slightly different, make a change, make a slight change, see what happens, feed that result back into your feedback loop. And surprisingly sooner than you think, you'll get to where you want to be. It's a bit like physical exercise. You go to the gym once, you're not going to be ripped, you know. You got to go regularly. Kind of incremental benefits uh, are a bit like compound interest. They grow faster and faster over time. And I think that's a good point for me to uh, stop and ask if you've got any final thoughts, John. Yeah, I do just a, a little bit. Uh, first of all, on what you said about going to the gym, I saw an interview with Mark Wahlberg. You know, he's really buff built dude and he made the comedy said it's a lot harder to get in shape than it is to stay in shape yes and that's true with anything you're doing and it goes back to what i was talking about like with the photography i was horrible i was terrible at it. i took terrible pictures but the more i did it the more i practiced the more i'd look at little tips from and i have this great book that helped me tremendously with a whole bunch of tips on photography and i would go out and try those things the more it started to become second nature to the right side of my brain for that side of my brain to take over and just snap the photo and so once i got into flow over and over again, it got easier to get into flow. And so now the quality of my pictures, I'm no professional by any means, but they're just far superior to what they were. So sometimes just time and experience comes into play, which goes back to fail fast, fail often, building that experience of attempts to get to your goal. If you keep at it, Inevitably, because you're constantly working at it, you're going to keep taking in knowledge about it. And that experience is going to apply that knowledge. And it's going to build a foundation that you need to be successful, whether it's photography, whether it's with stock trading, whether you are uh, creating a product, whether you're a software developer, whether you're going to the gym, whatever it is, you just have to keep doing it. And it, inevitably, eventually, all those pieces will come together 
and you will succeed, but you have to believe you will. I think where most people get in their way and all these things tie back to what we've already talked about, the stress of thinking they're going to fail. Like I said last episode that I uh, subscribe to the Eastern concept of detachment. I also subscribe to the Eastern concept of doing something without the end goal in mind to make whatever you're doing in this moment, your purpose in life, whether it's something very, very simple, like washing the dishes or a dish or whatever, be doing that thing. Don't be thinking about the thing down the road. Do it for the sake of the task. If you're doing your job, maybe you don't like your job, or maybe you have this huge project and you're doing this one little piece of it. Don't think about the end goal. Focus on the task at hand and the task becomes easier to achieve and the result ends up happening quicker and the quality is better than you thought. So when you're going through these steps, when you're having these experiences, when you're failing fast and failing often, don't do it each time. Don't take each of those steps with the end goal of, oh, if I don't get this right, I'm going to fail. I'm not going to reach my success. Don't think like that. Just do the task. Do the task. Take in knowledge. Try again. And in time, that success is going to come and it's going to come much faster than you believe, or you might really be surprised at how quickly it comes because you've removed the stress from it. Just like trying to draw that hand doesn't work because you're stressed about getting it perfect. So you draw the empty space around it and suddenly you have a great looking hand. It's the same in whatever you're doing. Try to remove the stress from whatever task you are performing and you will find that the success you're looking for will come so much quicker and the end result will just astound you every time. Just like that picture on the beach turned out perfect because I was in a great space. I was in flow. I had had physical exercise. I wasn't concerned or stressed about the settings on the camera or anything. Click, bam, perfection. That's how it's going to happen if you can remove the stress out of the steps that you're taking on your walk to success. Excellent points, John. And hopefully over the course of these episodes in this podcast, we'll be able to help people to achieve that because we're going to cover all the things that are relevant to success, mindset, content creation, if you want to build a business online, uh, even things such as, you know, these nebulous ideas such as happiness and so on. There are certain things that are common to all human beings and that work the same. If you give a painkiller to a person, it's going to reduce their pain. If you give it to another person, it will reduce their pain. If you use certain techniques, it doesn't matter whether you're young or old, male or female or anything else. Certain things will work for everybody in the same way. And the whole point really is to find what those things are so that you can self-actualize is the word I would use. But I guess it's design and enjoy the best version of your life that you can, whatever that may mean for you whether that's living in riches, whether that's living somewhere very simple and, and enjoying peace and quiet and, and you know nature, whether it's getting out and doing lots of things, whatever it may be, sailing, walking on the beach, flying, reading a good book, listening to music, whatever your success happens to be for you, let's explore that together in these podcast episodes. And we hope to be seeing you on the next episode, episode three. Thanks for joining us. 
You've been listening to the Prosperity Podcast with Jonathan Leger and Eamon Motin. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to the Prosperative Podcast with Jonathan Leger and Eamon Motin. Thanks for listening.